So obviously want to dig into the tour and the album and get your opinion on a couple things and just talk a little music being fans that we are. Whatever you like. No way not to talk about what we've all kind of been enduring over these past couple years with the uh, pandemic and lockdown and everything. And certainly for your musicians and putting out music now, I'm always kind of fascinated as to where the new album was when the pandemic struck. Like, where were you at with Acts of God in March 17th of 2020 when this whole craziness kind of first started had you guys even begun the album at that point take me back to then where were you guys at yeah actually bob had uh written i think four tunes by that point and uh the two times that we got together to practice for tours that we were doing for the atonement tour we ran through those four songs and worked on them a little bit which was cool and really out of the ordinary for us for album pre-production, at least in the last 20 years. So, yeah, so we had the four songs. We went and we did some more super extensive touring for Atonement. And then when we came back, uh, the idea was to just get the album finished up, get it recorded, get it put out, and get back on the road. Obviously, uh, world events changed that. But in a good way, we were in a perfect position to really work on this album. And, And for the first time ever, we didn't really have like a time limit. We didn't have a deadline, you know? So I just started working on the stuff that I already had. Bob started cranking out songs and sending them over to me. And then I would immediately, you know, start working on the drums. I got a little behind because like I said, I was, I was spending a lot of time on each song, making sure it was just the way I wanted it. When they finally announced that they had studio time and all that stuff, like we were pretty ahead of the game at that point, comparatively speaking. And, uh, yeah, it was nice. We were able to spend the, the, the right amount of time on it in the planning. So, like, the timing worked out perfect, you know what I mean? Like, lockdown, nothing to do but work on the music. That suited me fine. And for our situation, you know what I mean? Because we really couldn't get back out on the road or anything like that. It, it worked out good. And that's a funny point, too. Like, in your album cycle, it worked out. It was already time to go work on the album at that point. Oh, exactly. We we had just, just stopped touring, and we went, we did some crazy U.S. tours, like we did 41 Days Straight in the U.S. with uh, Blood in Can, and, um, you know, we had just done, like, Asia and Australia and uh, and all that stuff, so we were, like, shot, you know what I mean? We had done a lot more touring for Atonement <laughs> than we had expected to, and uh, toured here in, in North America, like, I think four times or something from that album, because things kept popping up, like, we got offered that decibel thing with Morbid Angel that wasn't originally in the plans you know what i mean and we took that so we did a lot of touring so it was absolutely the perfect time and we were completely done touring ready to work on the album and then bam it was almost like we got you know uh an extra year and a half two year extension on our timetable to work on that album to and, and to get that album ready to print do you remember those first four that uh robert came up with yeah uh the first one was um noose of thorns yeah. And uh, I remember being kind of bummed about it because it's, it starts kind of slow and melancholy. I mean, it, in, you know, after the intro, it kicks in and it and it starts kicking ass. But for me to hear, okay, this is the first song from the new album, you know what I mean? To to, <laughs> to give me a feel of like the direction he was going and what he was doing, I was a little a little frowny face on that. I was like, come on, man, we need some burning, you know? So you just wrote back no power ballads, right? I know better than to uh, doubt Bob and his so to speak. So, uh, you know, you know, the, it's going to be the first out of however many songs. So I wasn't totally worried about it. I was just kind of like, Meh. and that, that first riff is like, man, it was, it's just really wide open. There's nothing really super heavy going on with the guitar. It's kind of like on the drums to fill that space. 
sonically. So I was just kind of like, huh, what do I do here? You know what I mean? It was an unfamiliar situation for me, but luckily I had a lot of time to play around experiment and Bob had a lot of input on it too. And so, uh, yeah, I think it worked out good. Now it's, now that's one of our, our favorites. Um, I think that's going to be definitely in the live rotation for the touring and stuff. So I was going to ask you if you did have a baby, so to speak, since you did spend so much time, extra time on this album, is it one that, that jumps out to you that's your baby, your favorite on the album? Yeah, yeah, number seven, um, which is uh, Broken Prey. Mm-hmm. I worked on that song for, I'm not even going to exaggerate when I say like maybe six, maybe even more months, maybe even longer than that, man. Like, that's crazy. You know, I just kept writing it and rewriting it and writing it and rewriting it. And the other songs were piling up. Like, I had skipped over six, which was uh, A Moral Stain. And um, number eight came in after that, which was um, Derelict of Spirit. And so I was just, like, ignoring those songs for a while. Like I said, the songs started to pile up because I was working on seven so much. <laughs> and I wanted to get seven just perfect. But, uh, you know, the way it is with me is I go in there and I play to these songs and... Uh, I come up with something new, you know, because I kind of let go, you know, once I get the idea of the structure, I just kind of let myself play and let my hands and feet just kind of do what they want, what they feel. And I'm recording it, you know, every session when I'm in pre-production stage. So I go home and listen to it. And I like this and I don't like that. And then maybe even just listening to it, getting an idea. So that's me going in the next day and trying to teach myself what I came up with just in my brain the night before. And there was so much of that type of process of overplaying and then tearing down and then thinking something else and reworking it. I finally demoed that for them. It was funny because then they started sending me all kinds of memes and stuff about how I was in love with song number seven. But uh, yeah, that, that was my baby. That came out exactly the way I wanted it. I spent the most time with that song and, uh, I'm probably the most happy with that song and look forward to playing that one live the most. It's just a burner. That's a good, old-fashioned death metal song from beginning to end. You know, speaking of the live stage, yeah, we're going to get you in Southern California. <laughs> I was kind of curious, man, but for you, as, as fast and as hard as you play, do you, like, on average, like, how many sticks or heads do you go through on a show or crack cymbals? Like, what's, what's the damage? What's the, the, the damage at the end of the night for you on an average show night? It's not that bad, man. It really isn't. Compared to a lot of guys, I know guys that are just splintering sticks the whole set. I rarely go. It takes me months to go through a set of sticks. Heads, probably even less time. Like, a lot of time, the only time, the only reason I change the heads is more like aesthetics or because I'm going in the studio and I know the guys will be like, dude, you got to get fresh heads for the studio. But they're not worn out, you know what I mean? They just maybe look worn out because I don't play really heavy. I don't slam the drums, maybe play a lot of notes. I don't play with the velocity that I used to play with before I got into death metal. I was switching over from playing thrash to, uh, you know, getting my feet wet in death metal. And this was like in the early 90s. And uh, I went and I saw Cannibal Corpse with all the guys in my band and stuff. And we hung around after they had quit at the front of the stage because I just wanted to say hi to the guys and, you know, tell them great job. And that was just something we did in Cleveland. I got to talked to Paul Mazurkiewicz really quick. I asked him, you know, I was like, how do you do it? Because I was practicing a lot of cannibal course back then. What's the secret to going fast for a long time? You know, because I knew I only had a little bit of time with him to go on and take his ear all night. Right. And he, that's what he told me in so many words. You have to control your, your motion. You can't make these huge movements and big exaggerated swings. And if you want to have your cymbals five feet above your drums, you're not, you know what I mean? It's not conducive to that sort of thing. So basically economy of motion, which is what I was studying at the very same time, like in martial arts and stuff like that. So I was like, Oh, okay, great. And so I immediately began to apply that. So I, I'm not a big swinger. I mean, sometimes I get a little out of control, but I try to keep it, <laughs> 
economical, you know? Uh, so I don't really go through a lot of stuff, thank God, because symbols are so expensive these days. And <laughs> it's just, once I get a symbol, I fall in love with it. I don't want to ever want to part with it, you know what I mean? It's, it's a very sad day when I crack symbols. So I cracked like four or five right before the studio, man. And I'm telling you, like, this was during uh, the super, there was a lot of constraints on the supply chain, obviously. And this was a really bad time right before I went into the studio. And uh, I knew that I needed some symbols, like a handful of symbols. And I got a hold of Sabian. I'm lucky enough to be endorsed. And uh, they're like, okay, yeah, we can get these, but these we have to make. And it's going to be this many. And I was already sweating getting the stuff in time for the studio. And then I kid you not, like two and a half weeks, before the first day in the studio, another symbol broke that I did that I hadn't ordered, and I was like, "Oh, I cannot believe this! This is like a perfect storm." Because <laughs> like I hardly ever break symbols, and for all of them to go at the same time, I was like, "No, it was terrible." In the but middle of the pandemic, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it also you know attests to the amount of playing that I was doing, practicing, you know, to get the album going and stuff. But uh, yeah, luckily Sabian came through; they got me the symbols just in time, and. Everything is hunky-dory, so. But, yeah, I don't usually go through a lot of equipment. Like, on a on a tour, I'll maybe go through two, three pairs of sticks, tops, you know, so. Wow. Interesting to learn. Interesting to learn, man. And you had kind of touched on it a second ago. I was kind of curious to talk kind of outside of music for a second and talked about doing martial arts. I was curious, which, which one or what, what was your study? Are you still into it? What, what's your uh, martial arts were you doing? Uh, yeah, you know, I love it. And, uh, if I had two lives to live, one of them, I would have been, uh, a kickboxer or something, I think, um, something to do with martial arts. Cause I love it uh, nearly as much as I love drumming. And, uh, um, I started kind of late. I wasn't one of those kids who was in karate school when they were young or anything like that. I kind of got into it on my own. So I had a little different attitude going in and it was a cooperative thing with my brother who's four years younger than me. And at the time we both wanted to get involved into something and we had done research to figure out what style suited us best. And, you know what I mean? We've done a lot of reading and, and stuff like that. Um, this is, you know, before the internet. So that's really was our main source of information, but we live in a kind of remote area, Northeastern Ohio. There's not a whole lot of, uh, multiculturalism out here. So there's, you know, we wanted something traditionally Chinese and there wasn't a lot to go for, especially we were interested in Jeet Kune Do, which is uh, Bruce Lee's martial art, which is kind of a, a way of fighting that he put together out of experiencing a myriad of other martial arts, traditional martial arts. It's all about efficiency. Uh, so that was the philosophy that matched up with the with what Paul had told me. Um, but I couldn't find Jeet Kune Do. We ended up getting into obscure Indonesian Chinese martial art called Kung Tao, and there's very little of it in the country. And the lineage that this one comes from is super rare too. It's uh, it's a long story, but a fascinating story if you go down the road. After a few years of that, I ended up just out of circumstance getting back involved with Jeet Kune Do this time in like a real way, and uh, just fell in love with that. It was very it's a very hands-on martial art. If you think you can do something, you put the gloves on and you try it or, or you know what I mean? Or you get on the mats and you, you try it. That was what I was looking for. I wanted something that was going to help me feel more confident that I was able to handle myself and defend the people that I love if I needed to. 
because I got to try the stuff out. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's really where it's at. Like until you get on the mat and you try to wrestle someone or like wrestle another man or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Appreciate all the time. I don't want to keep you too much more, but uh, one thing I did need your help with, we're a uh, old school radio station. We do every night, 10 o'clock, we do mandatory Metallica. We salute Metallica and you're going to be a part of that. So I'm kind of curious, take me back to uh, who introduced you to Metallica. Do you remember the first time hearing them? I do. Um, I was riding the bus, and uh, I was into metal, but it was more like like Def Leppard metal. You know what I'm saying? Back in the in the day, and some of the guys on the bus, it was a skater crowd, so they had um, like Thrasher magazine, and they were showing me ads for uh, like Metallica and uh, Anthrax. And that's kind of where metal crossed over for me from the uh, Thrasher magazine and the skate guys. And there was a couple guys on my bus that were a few years older than me that played it for me. And I loved it. I heard the drums and I was like, just blown away. I was like, that is the wildest thing ever. And then from that point forward, I was the kid on the bus with the headphones on every day listening to Metallica and playing on the seat and, you know, getting in trouble with the bus driver for tapping the seat and tapping my feet. <laughs> yeah, that was that was huge for me, man. Huge. Learning double bass before I even had a double bass pedal, just from tapping on the floor of the bus and stuff. Do you remember what that first tune you heard was? Do you remember the, the very first tune you heard from Metallica? No, uh, I think it was the, it was the Master of Puppets album, so I'm, it was probably Master of Puppets. It was probably Bam, the first track. And then, you know, I went and got the rest from there. But I'm pretty sure it was that was when Master Puppets came out. I remember I can see the the ad in the in the Thrash magazine right now. <laughs> and that's their masterpiece, man. I mean that that album I think is is their masterpiece, flawless from start to finish. Yeah, I mean if you think of me as just this kid floating through the metal universe and not not having gotten to Thrash yet, and you know remember we got to remember this is a different time, and I'm in a remote remote rural place for me to all of a sudden get a hold of master of puppets out of the blue you know and uh and try to wrap my head around that it was it was a huge thing for me it was a huge transformative moment for my musical taste you know do you think Lars gets beat up a little bit uh, these days unjustly I don't know it's a weird situation with Lars Lars you know at one point in my life was you know, I would point to him on my wall and tell my parents, that's what I want to be. This dude right here, that's how, exactly how I want to live my life. But going through the process that I have, learning drums and, and playing drums and stuff like that, I realize now looking back that he was a different kind of drummer than I gave him credit for at the time. So I don't know. I mean, this is an athletic style of drumming. Metal drumming is not easy on you. And, uh, and for someone that was, I don't think Lars was ever like, hardcore into playing drums the way I thought he was. He's more of just an all-around musician, songwriter type of guy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's got he's got those skills and stuff. So, uh, you know, if, if he wasn't practicing 24 hours a day back then, he's definitely not going to be doing it now, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> I, I give him some slack. And then I'm guilty of it, too. Like, I think a lot of drummers beat up on Lars a little bit. It's fun to joke about him and stuff, but at the end of the day, um, those same drummers are going to give him credit for, you know, everything that he's achieved and all the drummers that he brought, you know, into the fold and, and influenced and uh, in a positive way. So yeah. it's hard to beat out of more than casually, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and, and you got to give him, like you said, all the respect in the world. He's the innovator, I mean, and he's done so much for metal and, and bringing it to the masses. And uh, yeah, yeah. I love 
Love and him. he's been a very transparent guy, too. I mean, this is a guy that people watch. You know, he's definitely a metal celebrity. And so, like, you know, I've seen Lars at his best and at his worst. And I'm among probably millions of people that have seen that. So I mean, that's, that's tough, you know. Like, that movie that they put out, you know, there was a yeah. lot of expose. There, there was a lot of those guys being vulnerable and sharing those moments with that many people. You know what I mean? People free, feel free, more free to judge people when they see him that way. But that's not really fair, I don't think. Last thing, man. Pick a Metallica mm-hmm. tune for us to play on Mandatory Metallica. Uh, the thing that should not be, has that been chosen yet? No, we can do that. Whatever It's whatever you want. I mean, I've played it before over the yeah, years, that's, but that's a great tune. That's, that's arguably the, one of the heaviest freaking songs ever for them. So, yeah, that would be my choice, man. Beautiful, man. Thank you so much for your time and the killer tunes, and uh, best of luck on the tour. Oh, no sweat, dude. My pleasure to be a part of that, for sure. Thank yeah. you again. Have a good one, man. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. No problem. Dude, you absolutely rock. Thank you so much for checking out the entire interview. Now just hit subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast, Radioactive Mike Z. My interviews in their entirety, available on all the major platforms. Tune in, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever you're listening to right now. Just hit the subscribe button. Make sure to give me a follow on the socials as well. I'll follow you back at MikeZ967. And bro, don't miss the radio show. Now 10 p.m to midnight on 96.7 KCAL Rocks in the Southern California Inland Empire area, Riverside, San Bernardino County. Always streaming online at kcalfm.com. You, my friend, absolutely rock.